Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Ruth chapter 3. This is part three of a series through the book of Ruth, an Old Testament love story that is far more than just a love story. There's a story within a story of God's incredible redemption of us in the book of Ruth. And this morning, things are going to get a little bit dicey. Ruth 3 is the climactic turning point in the book. In this chapter, we reach the height of tension, the height of drama, and suspense. And the reality is, hold on to your seats this morning because Ruth is about to turn up the temperature on romance in ways that are a little bit uncomfortable and shocking. All right, quick review. Uh, Chapter one of the book of Ruth begins with Naomi and Elimelech, along with their two sons, leaving Bethlehem to go to Moab in search of food because there's a famine in Bethlehem. Once they get to Moab, Elimelech dies. Shortly after that, Naomi's two sons die, leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah remains in Moab as they go back. Uh, Naomi and Ruth, Ruth clings to her, uh, devotes herself to her. They both end up back in Bethlehem as Naomi is reacquaintancing herself with, with old friends. She essentially says, don't Uh, Don't call me uh, Naomi any longer. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and I've come back empty. Chapter 2, Ruth goes out to glean in a field, and it just so happened that she landed in a field of a relative of theirs named Boaz, who is a redeemer. Well, Boaz offers for her to remain in his field. He protects her in his field and says, stay here for the entire barley and wheat harvest. That would have been two to three months. The rest is what dreams are made of. You know, there's a meal of roasted grain and wine for dipping. There's, this is a sentence with a lot of bees, all right? There's a bushel full of barrel that she carries on her back. I practice saying it all week. There we go. Uh, The best part of chapter two really is when Naomi learns that Boaz is the field that Ruth has been gleaning in, and he is one of their redeemers. By the end of Ruth chapter 2, food is very lavishly and graciously provided for them, but family, long-term provision and protection is still in question because chapter 2 ends with Ruth the Moabite still living with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And with that, the stage is set for one of the most complicated and difficult passages, in my opinion, in the entire Old Testament. If I'm honest, and I should be, right? It's always a good idea. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is what scared me about preaching through the book of Ruth to begin with. It was this chapter that I'm like, if I start it, then I'm going to have to get to chapter 3 and figure out what to do with chapter 3. But we are in too far now to turn back, and so here we go. Last time, I preached a 23-point sermon, all beginning with the letter V, right? 
verse 1 through verse 23. We're going to do the same thing this morning, but we only have 18 points this morning, all right? Verse 1 through verse 18. And what I want for us to do as we're going through Ruth chapter 3 is really to try to put ourselves into the shoes of these characters, feel what they would have felt, understand what they would have understood, uh, almost like we're the original audience hearing these things as they're being described. So the action of this entire chapter happens under the cloak of darkness. It happens from sunset to sunrise one particular day. Verse 1, here we go. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? That's Hebrew for Ruth, you need a man, you need a husband, you need a home. In fact, most translators translate it that way, should I not find a home for you? So here is the plan that the scheming mother-in-law is going to concoct. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing out barley tonight at the threshing floor. Two things about Boaz that we're told here. First, we're reminded that he is a kinsman. He is a relative, which basically means that Boaz is an eligible bachelor for Ruth. He's particularly eligible, as we'll see even more next time in chapter 4. And then secondly, we learn that tonight, Boaz is going to be winnowing out barley on the threshing floor. The barley has all been gathered off of the field, carried into a barn of some sort, stored there, but it has not yet been winnowed. Winnowing barley basically goes like this. You take a big fork, you throw the barley up into the air, the barley's heavier, and so it falls to the ground, and the straw and the chaff blows away in the wind. This would have happened likely on a hillside in a building shared by multiple farmers, but it's Boaz's night to be there. And so Naomi knows that this very evening, Boaz is going to be all alone, winnowing barley, and he's going to be in a place that's secluded. All right, we did this last time. Go ahead and cue up the dramatic music. You remember. Well done. All right. Now, up until this point... Boaz has been busy in the field. Ruth has been busy in the field. There's lots of hustle and bustle and people all around, surrounded by all kinds of activity. It is not like Ruth could have walked up to Boaz in the middle of the hustle and bustle and said, hey, Boaz, I was just wondering, have you ever thought of marrying me? But tonight, he's going to be all alone, and Naomi is helping Ruth to seize this unique opportunity. And here's where things get dicey. Look at this advice from Naomi, verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. That last part's probably better translated, put on your nicest clothing. Here's the equivalent. Ruth, take a shower, put on some perfume, and dress really pretty. Then go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. That's the plan. 
if you are hearing this in the original context, you are totally blushing right now. Like you are covering your children's ears from hearing this. Can you believe this is the advice that Naomi gives? Let's just walk through it, okay? Wash, perfume yourself, and put on nice clothing. Now, this is more than, Ruth, you've been working hard in the field for two or three months, and there's a bit of odor coming off of you. This is actually deeper than that. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 and following, David, King David, does this exact same thing. In that text, he had a son who was close to dying, and in the midst of his son dying, David is weeping and mourning and putting on sackcloth and ashes and praying to God. His son dies. You know what David does immediately after his son dies? He takes a shower, he anoints himself with oil, and he puts on fine clothing. Why? Why did he do that? Because it signified a time when his grieving was over, because now his son has died. When his son lived, David mourned and grieved and prayed. But once his son dies, he washes, he anoints himself, and he puts on fine clothing, all to signify that this time of mourning has come to an end. So the picture here in Ruth is, Ruth, you've been a grieving widow in a state of mourning for a long time, but now it's time to move on from mourning and make it known that you are eligible for marriage. She's going to do that with her very appearance. And in addition, you're going to smell better. So it's a win-win. That was supposed to be funny. Thank you. All right. Then, uh, next part of the instruction, go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. You hide out, you watch him eat, you watch him drink. Naomi knows something really important about men here. Ladies, you might want to take notes. Men are always in a better mood after they've had some food and some drink in their belly. So wait until he's in the best possible mood before you do this next part of this plan. After he eats and he drinks a little bit, he's going to lie down somewhere, probably near the pile of barley. And here's what I want you to do. He's probably, the reason he's sleeping there is because he's guarding it from thieves breaking in and stealing it or animals coming in and taking it away. Whatever the case, pay attention to where he lies down and falls asleep because once he's fully asleep, here's what I want you to do next. Uncover his feet and lie down. What are we going to do with that? Three words in the Hebrew that are filled with sexual overtone. Uncover, feet or legs, and lie down. Now what makes this so sexually suggestive is lying down is exactly what David did with Bathsheba. That's the way the Bible describes that. It is exactly what Amnon did when he raped Tamar. He laid down with her. It's exactly what Lot's daughters did when they committed incest with him. They lay down with their father. That's not something you do. And yet, Naomi's advice, go to him once he falls asleep and lay down with him. As we're hearing this, I can hear my wife's voice sort of going, 
no ma'am, <laughs> and shaking her finger like this, Naomi, you've crossed a line here that's inappropriate. Talk about crossing boundaries of appropriateness. Here's a way to wreck it all, all right? Old Testament dating advice from Naomi. Young girls, you find a guy who's quality character, you really like him, here's what to do. Sneak into his room, hide yourself away in a crevice. Once he fully falls asleep, go uncover his feet and then lie down. And when he wakes up, do whatever he says to do. All right, none of us are giving that advice to any of our daughters. You hear that, daughters? That's not, that's not advice I would ever, ever give, and yet that is the advice of what to do. It's crazy advice. How does Ruth respond to Naomi's instructions? Verse 5, she replied, all that you say, I will do. If it's crazy advice for Naomi to give it, I think it's also crazy for her to say like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great plan, let's do that. The audience hearing this has got to be on pins and needles thinking, what is going to happen next? This has just gotten steamy. And the language, again, used by the narrator to describe Naomi's plan, it is ambiguous enough that you are not 100% certain if she's recommending a sexual encounter. I mean, it could just be lie down, like literally lie down with him. But again, we see that language all over the Old Testament, meaning something more than just lie down. We don't know exactly. It's at least, the plan is at least suggestive and sexually charged enough that perhaps some commentators will say perhaps it's in her mind that this is a way we can secure an heir. Whatever he says to do, let's do that. We don't know because the Bible doesn't fill out exactly her intention of why she gave this plan. Verse 7, and when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So Boaz has consumed his food at this point. He's had some drink, almost certainly wine, as hard as Mary. And he goes over and he lays down at the end of the grain pile. Now, just put yourself for a moment in Ruth's shoes, or probably sandals at this point. You're hiding out near where Boaz is, probably in a crevice somewhere where he can't detect you. You're watching your man winnow out the barley. You're watching him eat. You're watching him make a pallet. You're watching him lie down, and you're waiting until you believe he is fully asleep. This is a romantic scene, and it's intense. I mean, you can almost hear Ruth's heart beating as she anticipates what she's about to do next once she determines he's fast asleep. So cue up the dramatic music, maybe the soft dramatic music, all right? The moment is here, and Boaz has fallen asleep. Can you picture Ruth stepping out from behind her crevice, thinking, man, I hope he is fully asleep? Second part of verse 7, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Cue a lot of dramatic music. <laughs> that was all right. Okay, wow, like this is really happening. This action, this decision, legs uncovered, getting in the bed and lying down with him. It's all 
really happening. Now mark it down. We're going to talk about it over and over, but nothing happens that crosses any lines of being inappropriate. The narrator of this story gives us no detail that would call into question Ruth and Boaz's morality. Both Ruth and Boaz maintain purity in their relationship, but the scene itself is intense. Anytime and every time a woman is found laying herself down in a sleeping man's bed, that is not a normal occurrence. I actually kind of hoped when I was studying this that I would fi find maybe this is some sort of culturally appropriate way to communicate. It's just not. It wasn't then. It's not now. This is, this is an odd thing. Verse 8, at midnight. The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. More dramatic music. All right. Put yourself in Boaz's shoes now. It's the middle of the night. Something startles you, and you wake up. Most commentators think, well, his legs are uncovered, and a cold breeze blew across his legs and woke him up. So you're Boaz, and you suddenly wake up in the middle of the night, and you're in that groggy, sort of half-awake, half-asleep mode. I don't know about you. I'm a terrible person to wake up. I feel so bad for my kids. I'm a terrible person to wake up in the middle of the night. It takes me at least 30 seconds to get my bearings and figure out what's going on and shake the grogginess off and say, oh, okay, you're sick. Okay, let me help. Uh, but it takes a little bit. Can you imagine Boaz trying to shake off this grogginess? and figure out what exactly is happening. Right now, he went to bed by himself, guarding his grain. He wakes up, his legs are bare. And not only that, but there is a woman lying in his bed at his feet. If you're Boaz, you're probably thinking to yourself, how much wine did I drink last night? And what was in that wine? And I love the question that he asks in verse 9. He said, who are you? <laughs> I mean, right? Like, what a great question. I personally wish we had a little bit more uh, information about the tone that he used when he asked this question. Was it like, a, you know, a, a little bit scared, kind of startled, maybe a little anxious, like, ah, who are you? Or was it more an angry, sort of ready to defend his life in his grain pile? Who are you? State your name. Or did he romantically whisper it? Hey, who are you? <laughs> we don't get the tone here, uh, but we do get uh, Ruth's response. She responds, I am Ruth, your servant. Now what's interesting is that word servant there she had mentioned it earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, saying, you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In chapter 2, the word that's used is more like, I am the lowest rung of the social ladder. I'm a nobody. I'm a slave to you, and I'm not even a slave to you. But here, the word is translated exactly the same, both translated slave, but it's a different word altogether. Eng the English language just doesn't have enough 
vocabulary to cover the nuance of, uh, but it's a different word with a different meaning altogether. This word in chapter three is a much more personal word and a word that denotes a relationship. She's basically saying, Boaz, I'm a willing slave to you. I'm totally wanting and eager to serve you with all that I have and all that I am. I am available to be in relationship with you. I am your willing servant. And this is where it gets interesting because Ruth all of a sudden goes off script from what Naomi had instructed. Remember, Naomi had instructed go, uncover his feet, lie down, and then next, Boaz will tell you what to do from there. So we, the audience, were waiting to see what is Boaz going to tell her to do? How's he going to respond? What's going to come next? Where is this story going? But instead of Ruth waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do, Ruth takes initiative and she tells him what she wants him to do, saying this, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Without question, this is a proposal for marriage. Ruth is saying to Boaz, I came to you tonight, showered, perfumed and dressed to kill. I uncovered your legs. I laid down in your bed to have this conversation to communicate with you that I want you to pursue me in marriage. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. This is forward, very forward to say the least. Now, when Chrissy and I were dating, we were 17 to 20. We got married right uh, at 21. I was finishing up high school, moving into college. And honestly, 17 to 20, I was a young guy, pretty afraid of commitment. Christy was a young gal, not afraid of commitment. In fact, I think it was one of her early thoughts, like after she learned how to say mama and dada, she learned how to say, I'm ready to get married somewhere in that same season. Now, I had noticed Christy. She stuck out to me. She was a greeter in our youth group, using her gifts to warmly welcome people in. I had noticed she's attractive, and she has got godly character. Uh, but she made some moves to make it clear to me that I needed to pursue her. And honestly, I needed a bit of a nudge, all right? Ruth is not gently nudging Boaz along here. She's giving him a hard shove to marry her. So this, this action of a man spreading his wings over a woman is something that only a husband would do for a wife. Ruth is asking in this, I want you to be my protector. She wants to be found under his care, under his provision, under his shelter, under his wing, close to his side. If that imagery sounds at all familiar to you, it should. It's the same imagery that Boaz used speaking to Ruth back in chapter 2, verse 12, where he said to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now Ruth is turning this image back on Boaz and saying, I want you to be the means through which God spreads his wings over me and gives me protection. You got to love it when a wife uses scripture on you. 
right? You be the protection of God over me. You spread your wings over me since you are a redeemer. Now remember in the telling of the story, this is more than Naomi had instructed. Ruth is stepping out here. She's not waiting to see what Boaz will instruct her to do. She's telling him what she wants him to do. And she clearly and directly states her desires. And this is a very bold move because what we have is a widowed, penniless Moabite proposing to a wealthy Israelite landowner. We have a worker in the field proposing to the owner of the field. We have a young female who just proposed to an older male. We have a fringe-dwelling foreigner who just proposed to one of the pillars of Israelite society. This is breaking all the rules. This was daring and risky, to say the least. Boaz realizes, there is a perfumed woman lying in my bed proposing marriage to me. It's daring and risky because he could have responded in a variety of different ways. One way he could have responded is, wow, that is a lot of audacity. Get out of my bed, get out of my house, in fact, get out of my field and never come back. Or, Boaz certainly could have taken advantage of Ruth in this situation. Remember, this is all happening during the days of the judges when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and sexual immorality ran rampant in Israel in these days. This was risky, it was daring, and it was dangerous for Ruth to do this. And we're thinking, how is Boaz going to respond? And so we wait with our ears to the ground for verse 10. Cue the dramatic music. You guys are weak at this this morning. You want to try it one more time? We need some dramatic music. Thank you. All right. Good job. All right. Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. All right, and we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief because we know from the very first words out of Boaz's mouth that he is not going to take advantage of Ruth in this situation. Instead, very consistent with his character, Boaz blesses her. Do you know that Ruth is one of seven women in the entire Old Testament who are blessed directly like this? And she's the only one who's blessed where the Lord's name is directly invoked, Yahweh is invoked. She's one of six others, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, Jael, Hannah, and Abigail. And then he uses this affectionate term, my daughter. Goes on to say, you have made this last kindness greater than the first, talking about the kindness that Ruth had been showing to Naomi up until this point, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And the picture here is that Boaz is a bit stunned that Ruth is actually interested in him, and that of all of the men in Israel that she could have been interested in, she's finding interest in him. She wants to be married to him. This is a picture of Boaz receiving love. Boaz is her choice, and Boaz is glad to be her choice. Verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz is telling Ruth, I like your plan, and I love your character. 
You want to see something really interesting here? Uh, think about Proverbs 31 and the virtuous woman. All of those descriptions that are listed in Proverbs 31 describing the excellent wife, the virtuous woman, the worthy woman are descriptions of what we see exampled in the life of Ruth. She works hard with willing hands. She rises while it's still night. She provides food for her household. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. All of this is descriptive of Ruth. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 is the perfect description of Ruth. And interestingly, in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, Ruth would have come immediately after the book of Proverbs in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible. So back to Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. This midnight encounter has gone quite well. I mean, we can almost hear wedding bells in the chapel ringing. We can hear the song playing in the background. Go into the chapel and we're gonna get... Oh, all right until verse 12. Uncue the dramatic music, all right? Verse 12, Boaz says, and now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Man, we were just coming into clear blue skies and now we learn that there's another man in our clan who is closer to Elimelech than myself, and he's got first dibs before me to take you in and to protect you and to care for you and to provide for you. So here's what Boaz says, verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. I think in this we're seeing a bit more of Boaz's good character displayed here. He knows that this is the way the Israelite society is set up, and he's not going to cut corners. He's not going to edge his way in when there's another man who comes before him in order of biological closeness in the clan structure. Boaz is displaying trust in God and good character as he moves forward. He goes on, but if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He's saying, if this other man steps out and he won't do it, I'll do it in a heartbeat. I'll do it in a heartbeat. Lie down until morning. He says, stay here. You don't need to be out in the middle of the night roaming the streets. That's dangerous for you. Stay here. Again, he's protecting Ruth. You can imagine that, that Ruth is not getting much sleep, nor is Boaz this particular night. They're lying there, staring up at the stars, considering what is going to happen tomorrow morning when all of this moves forward. You've got Boaz thinking, all right, when we wake up in the morning, I'm going to go into town and I am going to declare my intentions to marry Ruth, the Moabite. And I wonder what people are going to think. And I wonder what this other redeemer, what he, how he, how's he going to respond? There's tension in the air. There are uncertainties. There is still a lot that could happen that would put an end to Ruth and Boaz being together. This situation is far from being buttoned up. Once Boaz puts it out there, it's possible that the opportunity gets lost forever. Ruth is sitting there realizing that within the next 24 hours, she's going to find out who her husband is going to be. 
I think she'd like for it, she'd love for it really to be Boaz, but the reality is it could be this other man that she doesn't even know yet. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. (sighs) I laughed at this, studying this this week. In other words, let's just keep this whole matter of you taking that shower and perfuming yourself. Hey, you smell lovely, by the way, and you wearing that outfit, it's so pretty, by the way. And then you uncovering my feet and hopping into my bed and me waking up and us having this conversation. Let's just keep all of it just between you and me. It's our little secret, okay? I think Boaz is using quite a bit of discretion here, thus protecting Ruth's character. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. I know, like the ephah in chapter 2, you're not impressed because none of us know what is a measurement, how much are we talking about. We actually don't know exactly because he just uses this broad term measurement but doesn't tell us what the measurement is. If again it's an ephah, then we are talking 300 to 500 pounds of barley. If it's a sia, which most commentators believe it was, then we're still talking 80 to 100 pounds of barley. Whatever the case, it's most certainly more barley than she has ever carried back home before. Again, don't mess with CrossFit Ruth. She's a strong woman. She can carry herself some grain. And so verse 16, she heads back to Naomi. And you want to talk about somebody who has not slept this night. Uh, Naomi undoubtedly is anxious to know, how did my evening encounter pan out? What has happened? How did it go with Boaz? It's not like, you know, uh, Ruth could have slipped away for a second and sent a quick text message. Here's how it's going. She couldn't send a quick DM. Uh, There's no snapping back in those days. Uh, As far as I know, Ruth and Naomi, they're not on any kind of social media whatsoever. And as a result, Naomi's been pacing back and forth all night long, wondering what has happened with this evening plan. Finally, Ruth returns. And when she returned to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? She's wanting to know, how did Boaz respond? What did he tell you to do? Where is this relationship going? Is he going to marry you, or are you still a widowed Moabite? How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. But interestingly, in Ruth's description, we learn a new detail in the story that Boaz had said to Ruth that the author didn't tell us as it was happening in the story. The narrator is waiting until this interaction to reveal what Boaz said. Why? Well, listen, verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Have we heard that word empty before in the book of Ruth? takes our minds back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 21, where Naomi previously had said, I went away full, but I came back empty. So here's the picture. The narrator and God's sovereign design is organizing the details of this story to keep our eyes on God's sovereign provision that God is going to take care of this family. 
And the message is, you're not empty. I know you feel empty, but you're not empty. This is another reminder to us, I'll just pause for a second and say it explicitly, that when we feel most empty, when we feel most alone, when we feel most forgotten by God, God is mindful of us. And so often it's in those very empty times when God is planning in His sovereign goodness and purposes to bless us beyond what we could ever imagine. By the end of this book, Naomi's going to look over and say, she said, she said those words, I'm empty, with Ruth standing right beside her. Little did she know that the one standing right beside her would bless her and fill her more full than if she had seven sons. That's the reality. And that leads Naomi to respond in verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In other words, Ruth, sit tight, because within 24 hours, we are going to learn what our future holds. We'll know soon enough if and how the Lord is going to provide for us. Now, when this scene comes to its dramatic end, I'm kind of sad about this, but this is the last time in the book of Ruth that Ruth and Naomi will speak. They do not speak again in the book of Ruth. And what happens here at the close of chapter 3 is the curtain closing on the actions of two women in need of family who are sitting in their home waiting. Boaz now takes center stage. But the reality is that things are not fully in his hands either, nor are things in Ruth and Naomi's hands. Things now ultimate lie in the hands of God, and we're waiting to see what God is going to do. Well, that's Ruth chapter 3. It's a good story, isn't it? I really love that we have this story in the Bible. Let's move to try to apply some of these things. How do we apply what we just saw? I'm really glad I had about a month between chapter two and chapter three to think, because I've been chewing on this for the whole month, thinking, how do we apply these things appropriately? I've got two applications. The first is going to be a little faster. The second is going to take a little working through, okay? So the first, uh, first application is I would call us to marvel one more time at the gracious sovereignty of God. Marvel at it. God's sovereignty is all over the book of Ruth. Can't read Ruth without saying, wow, God is incredibly in charge of every detail of life. He's sovereign over famines that move people here and there. He's sovereign over the return of rain that moved people back from where they moved from. He's sovereign over deaths. He's sovereign over landing in a specific field and who owns that field. She's sovereign over where you go to glean some scraps to put a, uh, a meal together. We've seen God's sovereignty throughout the book, but chapter three offers us a picture of God's sovereignty, I think even in the midst of us making bad plans, which is another vantage point of God's sovereignty, which is worth marveling at. I personally, I love and I receive a lot of comfort from the fact that God is more than capable of bringing about His sovereign good purposes and great blessings, even in the midst of partial obedience and at times boneheaded plans and decisions. 
If it isn't clear, there are several things in this passage, especially on Naomi's part, that I can't help but see as unwise actions. Naomi, in my opinion, is laying out a plan, forcing the hand of Boaz in a dangerous, manipulative, and aggressive way to bring about her desired results and heir in her desired timeline. While nothing horrible happens in the story, I attribute it not to the wisdom of the plan, but to the ultimate sovereign kindness of God and the exercise of tremendous self-control in the moment by Boaz and Ruth. I don't take any issue with Naomi recommending a shower, perfume, and nice, nice clothing. No problem with that. I don't like sneak into his room at night, hide yourself away, once he's asleep, uncover his feet, lay yourself down in his bed, then wait to see how he responds and do whatever he says to do. I would much prefer Naomi's advice to have been shower, perfume, dress nice, go and knock on his door, have an upfront conversation saying, listen, Boaz, I've been watching you and I would be interested in doing more than just gleaning in your field. Do you have any interest back? And then trusting the Lord with the result. In daylight hours, that would be great. But God sovereignly works things out even in the midst of foolish, might I say, sinful plans. And I love that. I love that. How can you not love that? Because the reality is, have you ever made a foolish plan? Have you ever thought, not, not thought through all the implications of a thing, gotten yourself in and been like, oh yeah, that was stupid? How about this? Have you ever crossed a boundary or two in a relationship? And isn't it honestly very encouraging to know that if and when we cross a boundary, God's not like, you know what, I thought I was going to bless you, but never mind. That's why I labeled this marvel at God's uh, gracious sovereignty. I think they make some missteps, and I think God does not stop being sovereign and gracious towards them, and I think we need to marvel. It's one thing to marvel at God's sovereignty if I landed in this field and wow, it all worked out. It's another thing to marvel when you've really made a mess of it. This can comfort those of you who are in marriages and in dating, you didn't do it all right to think God's not going to sideline me and I'm done. It can really comfort parents with children who are in dating age and marriageable age to think they might make some missteps and if they do, God is still sovereign and he's still good. He's able to restore. He's able to use. He is full of gracious, sovereign mercy. That's application one. Marvel at his gracious sovereignty. Second application I'll take a little working through. This chapter paints what I believe is a compelling and wonderful and beautiful picture of biblical love and kindness that I want to call us more and more to possess. The word translated kindness, it pops up in every chapter of Ruth. It's in Ruth 1, 8, 2, 20, and 3, 10. I mentioned it last time quickly. It's a rich Old Testament word. It's the word hesed. Uh, there is not a comparable English word. If you could imagine all of these words blended together, then you have hesed. Kindness, 
meets love, meets loyalty, meets faithfulness, meets grace, meets mercy, meets deep compassion, all wrapped into one word. You have the word hesed. The majority of times that the Old Testament uses the word, it's referring to God's love for us. In the book of Ruth, though, we see that it also describes God's people's actions towards one another. And I want us to zoom in on some of the characteristics of this kind of rich love that God in His sovereignty frees us up to have towards one another. So five characteristics of love that I think we can learn from Ruth chapter 3. Here they are. First, love is patient. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 13. It should. Love is patient. Now, Ruth is straightforward. We've seen that. And Naomi comes up with a crazy plan. But take the story as a whole. Ruth has been an outsider working in Boaz's field for months. And Ruth did not come onto the scene in Bethlehem flaunting herself day after day. She's gotten up. She's worked a hard day in the field. She's gone home to her mother-in-law day after day after day after day, and nothing has happened in all of those weeks and months in the field working. That's the picture leading up to chapter 3, and there's patience there. And at the end of chapter 3, the curtain closes on two women waiting with decisions that are out of their hands. Boaz doesn't go straight to the chapel to get married. He's going to go to this other redeemer and walk through a proper process. We see a picture of love that is patient, love that's willing to wait, love that isn't rushing ahead, love that waits and trusts. Waiting is a function of self-control with matters of the heart. So love, it's patient. Secondly, we see biblical love that protects. We see this all over this story. Naomi wants to protect Ruth from a life of widowhood. She wants to help Ruth find a husband. Ruth wants to find provision, not only for herself, but one that will also provide for Naomi, whom she had committed herself unto death. Boaz protects Ruth in his fields, and obviously being uh, requested by Ruth to protect her moving forward, to cover his wings over her. Boaz carefully looking out for the best interest of Ruth all along. That's why he's not like, hey, leave now. It's like it wouldn't be safe for you. He's given to protecting her over and over. Biblical love protects. It's patient. It protects. Third, biblical love is pure. Remember, this story took place during the historical period of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and sexual immorality ran rampant in Israel in these days. And to see this scene of a man and a woman alone, secluded on the threshing floor, and for both of them to walk away unscathed, pure, not having given in to the crucible of temptation that undoubtedly was there. This was an intense scene, and Ruth and Boaz both walk away with their purity intact, and I think it is beautiful and amazing. This is heightened when you consider the historical context from Genesis 19. Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess, 
And I mentioned it last time, but I want us to see it a little bit more explicitly in detail this morning. Remember the story that led to the formation of Moab as a nation, and see if there aren't some similarities between what's happening in Ruth chapter 3 and what was happening in Genesis 19. There are significant differences, but surprising similarities. Genesis 19, 30 through 32. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. In Genesis 19, we have two women with no offspring who are scheming and plotting to preserve their family line, and that's the same picture we see in Ruth chapter 3, two women plotting to preserve their family line, verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Similarities, but differences. Lot gets totally sloppy drunk. Boaz drinks with self-control. But the picture is, wait until the man is finished drinking. Verse 34, the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and she did not know when, or he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Now, if you are a hearer of Ruth chapter 3, you're hearing a story of a Moabite woman going into an Israelite's room concerned to preserve offspring, scheming, perfumed, sneaking into his room at night, waiting until he's finished eating and drinking, uncovering his feet and lying in his bed. And the things that you would have been thinking in your mind would be, okay, here we go again. That's Moab for you. This is how the whole nation of Moab came about to begin with. Two infertile women concocting a plan to commit incestual sexual immorality with an aim to preserve a family line. That is the historical backdrop of Ruth 3, which includes a history of dark, perverted sexual immorality. But in the midst of that backdrop of impurity, widely known to the people of Israel in that day, here's a perfumed Moabite woman making a forward advance towards an Israelite on the threshing floor under the cover of darkness with no accountability in sight, but their encounter will stand in stark contrast to Moab's history as a people and in contrast to what was widely happening all over Israel in this day of the judges. Here's a couple who, instead of giving over into sexual immorality, here's a couple who have integrity and backbone and moral fortitude to resist temptation. And that, my brothers and sisters, is beautiful. It's beautiful, and I pray that God would build this into us. I pray that we would be a people totally committed to moral integrity and holiness and real purity. 
Let's be honest, brothers and sisters. We live in a day not at all unlike the day of the judges where sexual immorality is rampant everywhere. Roughly 135,000 pornographic websites are visited every minute of every day. Rampant impurity just seems like it's everywhere. And Ruth 3 is telling us there's another way. There's a better way, and it's a way of holiness and purity. This love, real biblical love, is pure. It's a picture of integrity and character and devotion to the Lord that drives behavior. Love is pure, brothers and sisters. It is pure. And my prayer for us is that God would raise up a church filled with Ruths and Boazes all over Emmanuel who desire holiness and purity above sensuality and selfish pleasure, that God would raise up men and women who are genuinely holy and honor God with our bodies. In a day of rampant impurity and sexual immorality everywhere, raise up people who give testimony that God's enough. He is enough and He's satisfying. And I will do nothing with my body that will tear anything away from His holiness and His greatness. God, raise up people who won't even find pleasure at looking at that for which the wrath of God is coming. God, would you build that into us? Fourth, and I got to go fast, love provides. We see that in Ruth chapter 3. All of these characters are going out of their way to provide for one another. Their provision is lavish, it's generous, it's extravagant, it's a little overwhelming. Fifth, love is willing to take risks. It's willing to risk a lot. There are risks all over Ruth 3. Naomi concocts a risky plan. Ruth follows through with that risky plan, and she risks her own reputation. She risks her own safety. Their future could fall apart completely. She very easily could have been taken advantage of. Boaz takes a risk as he prepares to go into the town square, into the city gate, and declare his intentions to marry Ruth, a Moabite woman. There are risks associated with love. Love requires risk. Love compels risk. Love motivates risk. More than one man has done more than one stupid thing out of love. It's why every missionary we have ever sent out is willing to risk their very life, their safety, their livelihood, because something in them, love, has compelled them to do it. Love will call us to take risk. All right, so love is patient. Love protects. Love is pure. Love provides. Love is willing to take great risk. Makes me ask the question, where do we get it? Where does that kind of love come from? Where do you get that kind of love? I'm going to let the Apostle John answer that for us and conclude with his words. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and following. Here's where love comes from. John calls us, Beloved, let us love one another. Let us be patient. Let us protect. Let us be pure. Let us provide. Let us take risks towards what. Let us love one another, for love is from God. You want to talk about patient love? <laughs> you want to talk, like, do you know half? I mean, just a small inkling of how patient 
utterly patient God is towards us. It'll blow your mind if you think about it for more than a second. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We love because He first loved us. We're going to see more of the unfolding of this Savior that comes right through the line of Ruth and Boaz. God is providing not just for them, He's providing for us in this story. God is rich in patience. You want to talk about a protecting love? <laughs> You're protected from His wrath because of His love. You talk about a pure love? Here's a God who's never committed a sin ever, not once. You want to talk about a providing love? You know what He provides for you? Eternal salvation through the blood of His Son. God. You want to talk about one who takes risks? Would you take a risk on you? God does. He loves you, and it's not a risk for Him. He knows what He's doing. He's sovereignly in control of it all. Last word, do not walk away from His love. Don't walk away from His love. Embrace it. Receive it. Marvel at it. Worship Him because of it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you make us more loving? Would you fill out all the characteristics and aspects of biblical love in our lives? Would we be a display of who you are? Would we walk in these ways that the Apostle John is calling us to, that we would love because we've been loved by you? Lord, we marvel. We marvel at you. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. We pray, fill us with more love for you, more trust in you. Lord, do it all for your glory. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.